Hej och välkomna till Fritankes podd. Jag heter Christer Sturmark och är förlagschef på Fritanke. Idag gästas podden av en amerikansk journalist som har varit med länge, Jeffrey Goldman. Han har bevakat sex amerikanska presidenter, flugit med dem på Air Force One. Alla utom den sista Trump faktiskt för att han var bara verksam i Vita huset några veckor efter Trumps installation. Men de andra har han rest med och flugit med. Och det här är ett intressant samtal där han jämför dessa presidenters kvaliteter och brister och kommenterar och berättar om sina erfarenheter av amerikansk politik under lång tid och de dramatiska skeenden som ju har inträffat under hans yrkesmässiga tid som 11 september till exempel. Ett spännande samtal. Lyssna på Jeffrey Goldman. Jeff Goldman, welcome to Sweden. Tack så hemskt mycket. <laughs> you have been here before, right? Många. Många besök här i Sverige. Varje år. That's For great. 36 år. That's great, that's great. Uh, um, so, st- start to tell us about your, your background. How, do, how did you get into journalism in the first place? It started actually when I was about uh, 13 years old in a, my school where every day on, on Mondays, I should say, uh, we had a current events discussion. And I was one of those people in the class the other students hated because I had my hand raised up in the air and I was very eager to discuss everything going on in the world. And nobody else was uh, that much much interested. So I thought, well, that might be something for me. And as I got older, I continued that interest and studied uh, journalism and political science in university and then went on from there uh, as a local television reporter or around the country and then uh, moved uh, to Washington, D.C., where I ended up at CBS News, the network uh, to cover the White House, essentially from uh, Ronald Reagan until the beginning of Donald Trump's administration. So six American presidents. Six American presidents. Who is the nicest of these six? (laughs) Who is the nicest? Well, I would say (laughs) most of them were quite uh, personable. I think that um, Bill Clinton was extremely personable. Uh, Barack Obama, extremely personable, uh, but so was uh, Papa Bush, George H.W. Bush, and mm. George W. Bush. Now and you mentioned almost all of them, so yeah. let's see who you leave out. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would say the least contact I had in terms of personal interaction was Ronald Reagan. Uh-huh. Uh, he was not the type to engage with people in little chit-chat as you were at events, but the other presidents were... Uh, very informal that way in the right situation. And uh, I think most politicians have that ability as a way to connect with people and voters. Mm -hmm. If they look like they're not so friendly or uh, stiff, people don't usually connect with them and hence won't vote for them. Mm, That's true, of course. I actually met two of them myself, Clinton, in 2001 in Berlin. Uh, and uh, the old Bush uh, in Paris, actually, uh, at a seminar. So, so I, I, I've seen them live, and Clinton I talked to for a little while, and he was very nice, I must say. That was one of his talents to be. Well, Clinton was, in terms of presidents, was the most ductic, mm. uh, talented in connecting with people, yeah. because he could intellectually... 
make somebody feel at ease, whether it was a bus driver or a Nobel Prize physicist. He could turn from one to the other and have a great conversation with them and make them very much at ease in, in topic. And his command of various subject matter was incredible. So I think intellectually, he was probably the smartest of the presidents in the last mm-hmm. uh, 40 years. Okay, that's interesting. Would you say that he was also the most intellectual person in terms of knowledge? Oh, oh his knowledge base was fantastic. Mm. He was one of the few presidents uh, that could field questions in an ad-lib basis. If uh, reporters were around him asking him about any subject at all, he was fine to answer and rarely, if ever, made mistakes in what he said. Other presidents are very careful uh, in what they say, and their staff won't let microphones near them because they're afraid they're going to say something Mm. factually incorrect. Um, And, you know, of course, now uh, President Trump has an (laughs) interesting situation because his staffers, uh, you know, are presented with his new media technique of using Twitter. So a lot of his comments are not filtered. And, you know, that can cause uh, problems if the information is not correct. So every president, whether it was Clinton, uh, both Bushes or Obama or Reagan, of course, are always looking to uh, limit any damage uh, mm-hmm. control issues if somebody says the wrong thing, because people watch and listen to everything that they say. Of course, yes. I remember that Clinton back in 2001 in, in Berlin, he was very enthusiastic about information technology and the internet and that what that could sort of do for the world and so on. But I, and in a way, the, the current president uses that a lot in his strategies. <laughs> Absolutely. Whether you agree with the technique or not, or what is said, he is using uh, Twitter yeah. as a way to communicate firsthand with people. This is new. I mean, don't forget, uh, presidents in the past didn't do much uh, with Internet communication uh, much before uh Obama at the beginning. In fact, Obama was the first president to uh, use an electronic device, something called BlackBerry, which of course yeah. is old school, not not used anymore. But nobody communicated in an instantaneous way. And now you've gone from that, which was kind of surprising back in not so many years ago, eight or 10 years ago, to a president that's um, using a few characters and instantaneous you know, Twitter account, which yeah. is something very different. You were in the White House for a few weeks, also under the Trump administration, right? Yeah, I was there with him uh, during the transition to office when he was first elected in November and right through his first week of office. I was with him um, inauguration day in our mm-hmm. so-called press pool. And uh, for those of you listening that don't understand how that works, we have five U.S. television networks, and every day we take a different turn uh, traveling with the president on Air Force One or at events at the White House or overseas or around the U.S. And on those days, the editorial information I gather from being close up to the president and any 
uh, video that we have is shared at the same time with all five U.S. networks. Uh-huh. There's no competitive advantage. Mm. It's done mostly because of space considerations. Only a few people can go on Air Force One or be at a photo op. So that's how we call it the pool uh, mm. system. So I was lucky enough on Inauguration Day to be with uh, new President Trump and outgoing President Obama watching uh, Obama's last hours in office and right on through Trump's uh, taking the oath and going to the inaugural mm. balls and signing his first executive order in the Oval Office that day to get rid of uh, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine two presidents that are more unlike each other. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree to that? They're very different. From each Every other. president's different. I okay. think this is the first time in, for as long as I can remember, though, where there has been such a consternation about the transition from one party to another. You could say people were. A bit out of sorts when George W. Bush beat Al Gore in that uh, very close election yeah. with hanging chads and controversy of who won. But um, and there were some hard feelings about that. But within a few weeks, I think people got over that and moved on. I think this is a very different transition. Never before have we seen so much, um, I guess, constant discussion among people in the states about the new president and what happened or you know for those that didn't vote for Trump how could this have happened mm. um, what's your own opinion how could it happen I think it's very easy to happen you say to your voters what they want to hear mm. and in industrial uh, states in the midwestern part of the country coal miners and factory workers Uh, who are in uh, jobs that are not current in need or technology, they're desperate for work. Mm. And when Donald Trump said to coal miners, for example, that we're going to get your jobs back, well, that's not going to happen. But that's what they want to hear. Mm. Hillary Clinton didn't say that to them. So if you are in that situation, I think human nature is you go for the person that's promising you <laughs> your economic yeah. livelihood. And but it's not a, a, a realistic proposition. These people need to be retrained for future types of jobs, modern jobs that are out there now. And that's very important. So I, I think it was easy for somebody like Trump to pick up that theme and, um, you know, run with the ball. Uh, people in the states were very angry at the American Congress and Senate uh, on both sides, the Republican and Democratic side, because nothing was done. Mm. for most of the Obama administration. But would you say that Trump doesn't really care about what's true or not while he's talking to people? Uh, well, I would say that you could make that argument. And um, it's a little different if you say that while you're uh, running for office. But when you're in office, uh, you're held to more accountability. And people are questioning these things. Uh Journalist uh, newspapers and television uh, news broadcast have called him out on this and mm. say, "Well, here is the facts." Um, that doesn't seem to deter 
the president from continuing that idea of how to communicate. No, um, he deals with alternative facts instead. Right, <laughs> and uh, but uh, our country is very divided, and there's you know. Uh, nearly half of the population thinks that what he's saying is just fine. Mm. Now, as a uh, 40-year-long journalist, I have my biggest problem with him now is to, you know, to blame the media on mm. everything mm. Uh, as a smokescreen for situations that he's faced. Um, he is brainwashing a population in general to distrust the media. And every president, Democrat and Republican alike in the past, sometimes has problems with the story out there. And they will contact a correspondent or their organization and say, well, this is wrong and here's why. But never before have they gone after this anti-press theme on an almost daily basis. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And our Second, Amend uh, Second Amendment in our Constitution, you know, uh, calls for freedom of speech and press. Mm. And just as people who support, uh, I'm sorry, First Amendment, uh, mm. excuse me, First Amendment, uh, Second Amendment is the right to bear arms. And, you know, that's a very big issue in the states. People mm. want to have those rights. Well, those same people and all Americans, I think, should be very concerned about freedom of press, the First Amendment. Mm. That That's very important. We do not want a society uh, like Russia right now, where Putin poisons or kills mm. journalists because they say something, or any, any country, mm. or North Korea, where yeah, you yeah. just bow that's down extreme. in dear leader adulation. Mm. No society in the Western world, democratic, uh, with democratic values, wants that type of situation. So that's a big issue for me uh, looking at this now as a journalist. So you, would you say that Trump is dangerous for America right now? I, I don't know if he's dangerous for America in the sense of, uh, I think press-wise it's, it's potential danger. It's a danger for America now if his impromptu comments on Twitter are interpreted by very unstable people like Kim in North Korea to initiate a launch against uh, the states uh, with these intercontinental ballistic missiles. So we have to be careful of that because words matter. And I think that, you know, whatever is said on Twitter can be interpreted in many different ways. And mm -hmm. okay, in the past, you know, the normal situation is diplomatic niceties and mm -hmm. people talk in circles. But I think um, we have to be careful of how we disperse information, especially from the president, because everybody is listening to every word that he says or what they read about what mm -hmm. he said. Mm -hmm. The conflict with North Korea seems to grow every day right now as we speak. I mean, yesterday, I think, Trump made uh, some statement on television that sounded quite s strong. But fortunately, yes, it was very strong and, and threatening against the North Koreans. Yeah. But his Secretary of Defense, who himself is a career military general uh, today... Uh, was stressing the need for diplomacy. Yeah, wow. So 
we can be hopeful because if he, in fact, is listening to his, you know, military people, and in this case, a retired general who is Secretary of Defense, um, I think that's important to hear them try to push the diplomatic uh, solution on this rather than going to a war where the there are too many unknowns. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, uh, being a journalist working with American politics for so long, what, when, when in time during this last election did you start to believe that Trump probably will win? I was with uh, President Obama right up until uh, the night of Election Day uh, when he was campaigning for Hillary Clinton. At that point, the last two stops were uh, New Hampshire and Philadelphia. And I had no inkling at that point that Hillary Clinton would lose the election. It seemed like the polling data was mostly favorable. She had the momentum of a sitting president. Mm. She had name recognition. Uh, the polls were wrong, mm. clearly, mm. and or people who were polled for their opinions before the election were very cautious in what they said. I remember sitting in the control room of uh, my television network that night at about 10 o'clock at night when the polls were closing and seeing certain states that were critical for winning, like Florida, Michigan, Ohio, uh, going to Donald Trump one by one and thinking, I think Hillary Clinton has just lost this election. And as you know, I think her campaign staff and Hillary Clinton were also in shock about this because it was two or three o'clock in the morning U.S. time, and they still would not concede the election. I mm. think there was a, a disbelief that this was happening. And I remember going to bed that night uh, at about four in the morning getting home, and I had to be back at the White House at seven. And I remember stumbling out of bed in the morning thinking to myself, did that really just happen? <laughs> it, was, it was rather shocking. And yes. don't forget, I lived through the 2000 election mm. between Al Gore and George W. Bush that was incredibly close. Mm. And this topped that. This shattered all of the drama of that election because this was totally unexpected. And again, I think there was a read by polling data and others that was clearly wrong. Clearly, a lot of people are out of touch with certain working class Americans who saw it very differently. Hmm. I'd like to go back to another very dramatic day in, in, in recent time in American history, I'm thinking about 9-11. You were, of course, uh, you were working as a journalist by then. Uh, tell me first, what, what, what was the actual situation for you when this happened? How did you get to know about it? Where were you? Well, ironically, um, I was supposed to be on September 11th with George W. Bush in that school classroom in mm -hmm. Sarasota, Florida. 
I was in Sweden visiting my family and came back on September 10th. Mm-hmm. My office got mixed up and thought I would be back at work on September 10th and was planning on sending me to Florida that night and to be with President Bush on that famous day, September 11th. Uh, Instead, I was at the White House that day when the attack happened. And I remember looking at the TV monitors. It was a beautiful, clear, crystal blue sky day and remembered looking at the TV monitor and seeing the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. And then not long after that, hearing about the Pentagon attack, which is about one or two kilometers away from the White House, and being in shock. And at that point, everybody ran out of the White House, and we were standing on the street there um, as the president was being evacuated from Florida. And um, the entire city of Washington emptied out. People went to get their children, and uh, within an hour, it was a ghost town, basically. Mm. Uh, You couldn't hear a pin drop in the street. It was so incredibly still and quiet. Did you believe that the White House would be attacked as well? At that point, no one could be certain. When the Pentagon got hit, Mm. It was unclear. People thought, well, maybe the White House is next. The White House actually would have been much harder to hit as a target the way it's situated. The Mm -hmm. Pentagon was easy to hit with the plane and the trajectory. In the aftermath, of course, we know that the plane that was crashed in Pennsylvania uh, was actually headed for the U.S. Capitol building, which was a huge target just past the Pentagon, no obstructions, no sharp turns. And frankly, I think if that building had been struck, the visual uh, image of that uh, would have been even more devastating than the Pentagon or the White House being hit. Mm. Uh, It it was, would have, I think, been an unbelievable image in America. Mm. At this moment, when you stand there on the street, uh, what did you think this was all about? Did you have any idea of that? No, no. did not, did not. In fact, um, I, uh, the day after uh, President Bush went to Ground Zero, I went with the Attorney General in a press pool, just myself and one other fellow and a cameraman, uh, with uh, the Attorney General and Robert Mueller, who was the brand new appointed FBI director who's mm. in the news today and in investigating things with Trump and Russia, as you know. Mm. And uh, we went up to Ground Zero on an unmarked FBI jet and went to Ground Zero, and things were still smoldering, and the rescue workers were digging through the rubble and looking for things. And we went to a secret FBI uh, garage that was set up near the Hudson River where investigators were looking at every hint or clue of who perpetrated this heinous act on on America. Um, But nobody knew what was happening at that point, you know, and it was in the next days they discovered the the hijackers and, and what what happened here, but the initial 
nobody knew at the beginning. And of course, you have to remember, we've had terrible things happen in the states in the past. The uh, federal building in Oklahoma City, where all those people and children were killed in a huge Hmm. bomb explosion there. Everybody wanted to look towards Middle Eastern perpetrators, and those were Americans that did that to their own people. So, you know, time and time again, you know, that's the first assumption. Um, But you just don't know. Hmm. Would you say that America, sort of the, the, what's the English word for this, the the view of your own country, did it change 9-11 for American people? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. People uh, were very much in fear. And uh, in fact, in politics, you can tie this all together. Um, George W. Bush um, was not a very popular president. But this happened soon in his presidency. And when he ran for re-election, the theme was, who is going to keep America? Who is going to keep you safe? Mm. And I think that resonated in voters. And they voted to re-elect him um, because of that fear factor. Mm. I think it really made people more aware of the world around us and security in the states and abroad. And uh, that was the wake-up call for the world, I think, in fact. Wouldn't you say that it's the same kind of um, fear that led Trump to his victory? I mean, keep America not only great, but also safe? I think keeping America great, the economic part of this... Uh, keeping jobs in the states instead of outsourcing them to other countries. I think that was his main theme. I, I think, you know, it's been 16 years since the original September 11th attack. And I think people are still aware of security and concerned about it. But I'm not so sure that that led to his victory. Mm. Um, you know, but the whole thing about you know stopping Muslims to travel into the country and all that—he used that in he his used that. campaign. That's that's correct, um, and I guess that was a fifty-fifty uh, uh, view of things. Uh, obviously, half of the population thought that that was a bit extraordinary and were against that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly people did think that that was something. But I don't think that would have stopped any type of terrorism limiting who's coming in and out. We all have homegrown uh, terrorist people. Mm. You have them here in Sweden, as evidenced by the truck attack here. Mm. We have them in the States. Mm. Uh, People who were born and raised... uh, Uh, in the states of uh, foreign uh, parents who decide that they're going to take up the cause and go abroad or do things or attempt to do things at home. So you cannot stop, obviously, those people who are legally in the country Mm. that have different ideas. Mm. True. If you speculate a little bit on on the future now, I mean, uh, first of all, do you think that Trump will be there for eight years or only four years? What's your guess? That's a, that that's a hard that's a hard guess. Um, I'm guessing um, 
if he were to leave before the end of his first term, it would be because he doesn't like being criticized and uh, in a simplistic way doesn't like to have his feelings hurt and say, I don't need this, and that's it. That could happen, you mean? It's possible. I think if the heat continues on him vis-a-vis the Russia allegations um, and family connections or associate connections with uh, Russia in the past, he might, if, if impeachment proceedings, for example, are started, he could say, I'm out of here before that were to happen. Mm. Um, I'm not so sure he would run for second term, mostly because of age, but I could be wrong. Um, I think um, it, it, he's got a very uh, strong ego, so he might enjoy it. But I think... I'm guessing this has been kind of a shock to him to be under such scrutiny every moment of his presidency. And that happens, it's not just him, that every president is under scrutiny. And some people don't like it, and as a result, some of the best and brightest people uh, stay out of politics Mm. because they don't want to subject themselves or their families to that constant scrutiny. Um, tell me, what's your view on, on um, I mean, America's or the, 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 the Trump administration's uh, attitude to science? That's been discussed a lot in Sweden. I mean, uh, climate denying. Well, and well the, the climate uh, issue um, has really <clears throat> infuriated a lot of people in the States. Most interesting, uh, big industries in the States, uh, Ford Motor Company, other big companies that might surprise you have come out against his ideas on uh, backing out of the Paris Hmm. Climate Agreement. And most people uh, argue that uh, there have been a tremendous number of jobs created to uh, help with clean energy and alternative energies. Um, so, and big industry seems to be on board with that, which is, is quite interesting. So, um, I think it's the more people that say that, the more maybe the president will, uh, think about that. I mean, he, uh, of course, in the coal industry, they don't want this and, uh, but they're a very small number of people. Um, compared to the rest of the population, and uh, Trump may back off. I mean, he's backed off on a lot of pronouncements from the beginning, and we'll see what happens in the end. But Mm. uh, it's been encouraging to see a lot of big industrial giants in the state say, hey, wait a minute, you know, the environment, clean environment, is not necessarily uh, something that we want to fight. We, we, we agree that we can take these steps and create jobs. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking it's not, it's not the first time that, that parts of America go against the main, ad, main ideas in science. I'm thinking about the quite big creationist movement in America, the religious uh, conservatives who deny evolution and right. so on. Um, do you think... 
Trump will sort of support that kind of development as well, uh, taking out evolution of schools like in Turkey, for example. I don't think so. I I have my doubts about that. And as you know, uh, his vice president is a very religious yeah. person. Um, he might have other ideas, but usually vice presidents keep those ideas to themselves for the most part. Um, I have not... I have no belief that at this point that Trump will get involved with that. I think that's not, doesn't seem to be his pattern to get involved mm. with um, evolution and that, the science of it. Because he doesn't seem to be a very religious person himself. No, there's no evidence that he's a religious person. Um, and especially, again, uh, compared to the vice president, Pence, um, you know, he comes across almost as non-religious. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, he was in church on uh, inauguration day, and his, uh, which is the custom. They go there for a prayer service before you know they go to get the oath of office and become the new president. But he, like many other presidents in the past, are you know almost never seen in church. It's just a very occasional thing if they go. Would you say that Obama was religious or not? Uh, I think he was spiritual. I don't think he was very religious. Mm. Again, he very infrequently went to church. Um, you know, they. I think a lot of presidents uh, stay away from that because they feel it's disruptive to the congregations. The one president in any recent memory uh, that was a churchgoer was Jimmy Carter. Uh -huh. But since then... Uh, But you George know, Bush as well, wasn't he? George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, very occasionally, mm -hmm. not very often at all. And Reagan? Reagan, not either. Uh -huh, okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, okay, finally, I'd like to ask you, you've been working as a journalist for, is it 40 years? 40 years. And now you stopped. I just uh, retired. So what's next well, for so, you? Well, <laughs> uh, now I'm going to do some speeches about these very topics, uh, covering six presidents and various wars around the world <laughs> and uh, talking about some uh, interesting life experience, covering some of the biggest stories in, in our lifetimes to different uh, organizations around the United States. And mm -hmm. I, I think it'll be very interesting. What is the most fascinating memory from all your years in journalism? The one most special memory? <laughs> That's a hard question. That's a very hard question. There's so, I, I mean, there are so many memories. I've been writing my speech for this, uh, this project that I'm going to be doing. And, you know, I've, I've covered, you know, fantastic uh you know, elections, uh, real drama, cliffhanger things, but I've covered wars and both Gulf Wars and the the war in Bosnia and Somalia and covered fantastic moments like the election of Nelson Mandela in mm. South Africa, covered the end of uh, the communist empire, the end of the mm. Soviet Union, Uh, seen emerging <laughs> democracies and covered those elections and uh, covering terrible tragedies like the earthquake in Haiti uh, seeing so many people dead at one time is something you can't forget so you were there yes. on, on the spot yeah. yeah and uh, 
being in the various wars and seeing the uh, how technology in the military has changed and limiting mm. the number of uh, American soldiers wounded or killed because of technology and contrasting that with going with Obama to the 70th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy and standing there on the beach looking up on the hill realizing what an unbelievable slaughter that was mm. of, of these young men and uh, but how things yeah. have changed technology to limit the numbers of casualties um, it's it's been fascinating I've been of an, course uh, an eyewitness uh, to so many things that um, it's been very rewarding but okay let me ask you this then is what is the most memorable meeting you've had with a person I mean what what person has made the most strong impression on you in your career is there a meeting uh, you really I, remember I remember an interview we did with Nelson Mandela uh, just before he was elected uh, president wow. and how he put things together and and was not bitter about his past and very uniting in South Africa at the time to uh, people of all colors there and the respect that he uh, gained from all colors of, of people there and I thought that was pretty extraordinary mm. um, and you don't meet many people like that so I think he was most inspirational to have gone through a, a tough time living mm. in prison so many years and then making such positive things about the outcome I only wish that his successor governments and leaders had done the same thing because mm. now it's a very tough situation there but uh, at the time I remember he was a fantastic uh, inspirational person yeah. to to have met um, in, in yeah. various travels I've had do you plan to write a book a lot of people ask me that but <laughs> I <laughs> I I think that might be fun for uh, family and friends to see uh, I don't know if there's much much market for it but I'm asked that question a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. okay thanks for talking to me thanks for thanks. having me